Parnaso. So we come to the last of last episode in the cycle. This culmination of equanimity. And what I'd like to do this afternoon is really nothing new in terms of any specific ingredient, but putting it together in a synthesis. So equanimity. But of course, we've been dealing with Donglen all the way through from the very beginning, Donglen for ourselves even. And so in this practice of equanimity, I'd like to really have it be a practice of Donglen. So every out-breath, breathing out the light, you can either simply breathe out as you wish or with the visualization as you wish. But every out-breath, an out-breath of loving-kindness, every in-breath, the breath of compassion, and so it can be that simple, just simple Donglen. But Donglen completely suffused with equanimity. And what I would suggest is like a, uh, the, the image that came, at, came to my mind is sonic boom. Sonic boom. It starts in one place and then if you, it's like sonic boom up in the sky, that's usually where they happen, uh, like a jet breaking the sound barrier. Then right where the sound barrier is broken, then you can imagine that just the boom would go out in all directions evenly like that, like an ever-expanding orb of a boom. So a boom of loving-kindness and compassion. And just imagining this field of your awareness, this field of caring, loving-kindness and compassion expanding in all directions. So on the one hand, it can be very spatial, as the Buddha himself suggested in teaching loving-kindness practice, just to the north, south, east, west, above and below, and so forth. So one can do it that way. It's very good. As you're doing so, you might recall this wonderful counsel I received from my abbot back in 1974 or so, when I asked him, how shall I understand all sentient beings? And his response was, you recall, yeah? Every sentient being that comes to mind. Everyone that you meet, everyone that comes to mind, everyone you, you know about from history, and so forth. And so as you expand your awareness, you're breathing in, breathing out, uh, you can just imagine expanding, embracing everyone in this room, at the PIA, the surrounding valley, and so forth. But as you do so, it's very likely that on occasion some specific sentient beings may come to mind. In which case, welcome them to the party. They're kind of party crashers. Okay? They're venturing into the room, the ever-expanding room of Donglen. And so whoever it is, whether it's a loved one, whether it's a difficult person, a person that is an object of desire, maybe sex, sensual craving, a person who is an object of resentment, a person an object of jealousy, a dear friend, whoever it may be, just breathe out, breathe in. And so you may do it straight, straight Donglen style, breathing out the light, drawing in suffering and the causes of suffering in the form of darkness, dissolving it without trace in the heart. So that would be a good practice. There's another variation on this. I didn't make it up. If you'd like to know the source, it's a spacious path to freedom, and it's right in the, I think, the very first chapter that I translated, a very brief, um, wonderfully concise account of the stage of generation, but specifically in Chenrizi practice, of a Lokiteshvara practice. And the practice there, as I recall, is, again, sending out light, but instead of, in this practice, here you are, Chenrizi, dissolving your ordinary sense of self, generating as Chen Rezi. 
So I'm telling you that I'm, I'm not teaching this now as a stage regeneration practice. For those of you who have background in that, it makes sense to you, you're drawn to it, excellent, go for it. Even without that, maybe you don't really know about Vajrayana and this would be alien, a bit contrived, whatever, then forget about it. You can still do this practice without you know, the whole stage regeneration aspect to it. And that is, the point here, is that you're breathing out loving-kindness, but as you're breathing in, instead of breathing in darkness and imagining it dissolve in your heart and being extinguished without trace, instead of that, you breathe in light. You breathe in the kindness of all the awakened ones, you breathe in the kindness of all sentient beings, so horizontally and vertically, right? So just... Breathe it all in. In other words, you're just breathing in blessings from your fellow sentient beings, from all the enlightened ones, and just breathing in the blessings, all converging in upon your body. So receiving that, and then breathing out evenly, breathing out love and kindness. So it's kind of a variation, but I, it's really quite a wonderful practice. And the deeper the faith there is, then the more powerful it can be. And then it's all light. And so you become more like a funnel or like an hourglass Everything flowing into the center and then flowing out the other end. So three-dimensional hourglass, everything flowing in, everything flowing out. And if you do it in that mode, which, I mean, my words here probably are that particular format, maybe a... No, it's not even original. I'm glad to say it makes... Ah, phew, it's not religion. It's not, it's not original. No, it's really right there. Uh, couched within the state of degeneration, but clearly one doesn't have to generate oneself as a deity to do this practice. It's very cool, it's very deep to do that, but don't need to. But if we consider this approach, breathing in, breathing out in that mode, then we see, there's a little perk, and that is in this one simple practice, then as you're breathing out, it's loving-kindness. As you're breathing in, you can also, that is in the first phases, you might do in the first part, because what I want to do is front load this, and when we do it, I can kind of be quiet. So imagine in the beginning, first phase of the practice, you're doing Donglen. Breathing out loving kindness, breathing in compassion. Good. And then at some point, maybe your own discretion, your own choice, or maybe I'll give you a little tip, maybe we start now. Then breathe out light, breathe in light, and as you're breathing in, what would we call that? Mudita. Empathetic joy, gratitude, sense of thanksgiving, receiving the bounties of sentient beings, receiving the bounties of, of the enlightened ones, breathing that in. So now we're getting loving kindness, compassion, empathetic joy. And of course, this whole thing is homogenous. So it's not bumpy. It's not you're, the rays of light are not going, oh, there's Carlos, I have to skip him. And then go back over to, okay, Memo's okay. I'm not quite sure about, not quite sure about her. Hey, oh, but there's, there, Darlene is fine. You know, like trying to weave through traffic. You know, it's not that way. Okay, completely homogenous. And so in that, in that way, in this one practice, all four measurables. Not bad, huh? In one session. Four for the price of one. <laughs> and of course, there's something immensely deep here. And it can easily be taken, I think it often is taken, as a religious belief, and I think nothing's wrong with that. Everybody's got beliefs. Everybody's got beliefs. Anybody who thinks he doesn't has a false belief. <laughs> maybe, um, no, I have to be a bit careful. I think maybe a Buddha doesn't have any beliefs. But for the rest of us here wandering around, well, we function because we have beliefs. We can't know everything that we're relying on. 
So there's nothing wrong with that. So for many people, what I'm about to say is a religious belief. Fair enough. That can be very powerful. Beliefs can be enormously powerful. But it can also be a hypothesis, one we can put to the test over time. You're not going to put a test in one day and say, oh, good, positive results, answer qu the, the question is answered. But it's a theme that crops up quite clearly, especially in Mahayana, Vajrayana Buddhism. Crops up in other traditions, theistic traditions. And that is, it's in the very fabric of reality itself. It's in the nature of nature. That we were being drawn to genuine happiness. In this complex interaction between, on the one hand, karma, sow and you reap. Sow the seeds, you reap the harvest. That's just causality, right? That's just causality. That's hedonic displeasure and hedonic pleasure. Sow it and you reap. Sow it and you reap. But when we're settling the mind into natural state, for example, doing any of these practices of the shamatha, the mindfulness of breathing, settling, awareness of awareness, for many of you already has occurred that things start to unfold. You'll have experiences of kind of something of a breakthrough. It's a luminosity, it's a sense of well-being, a sense of ease. It's energies opening up in the body. There's a real flowering for those, and then people I know, who've been practicing a good deal more than five weeks, it just gets deeper and deeper. And the unfolding really continues. This is not just karma. This is not because you had some shamatha karma in some past life. You know, this is unfolding. And there you are. What are you doing? You're watching your breath. Now, what are you doing? You're watching your mind. What are you doing? Just rest, resting in awareness of awareness. But now something is unfolding here. And it's like drawing you. It's, like you. it's almost like you're coming into a gravitational field that's drawing you into, in shamatha practice, drawing you into the substrate, drawing you in. And we keep on saying, not so fast there, not so fast. No, no, wait, wait a minute. I, I don't think I, I'm good at this. I, oh, I think, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. You know, <laughs> all the resistance coming up like, oh, 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 I'm not so sure about this. Samsara is at least familiar. This isn't familiar. You know, so then we're straining and falling back into old habit patterns of grasping, hope, fear, resentment, desire, and so forth. But there it is. But when we release all the entanglements, or to the extent that we can, we're not just sitting dead in the water. I think that's, the, that's just the most amazing thing. When we're not doing anything, when we're just being present there, relaxed, clear, still, being present, you don't just sit there in the middle of the ocean going nowhere. But in fact, things start happening. And it's happened so many times that for myself, this is not a hypothesis, this is just the way things are. Settling the mind entails actually the mind does settle. It doesn't just sit there and give you a repeat performance every day for years on end. Welcome to samsara, you're just sitting still. A gravitational pull starts to take effect. The rangdul quality starts to come in. Rang means natural or self, and dul means release, liberation, the, the entanglements, the knots of the mind. And I think you all now all know what I'm talking about. The points where we get stuck, we get hung up, and so forth. It can be grief, it can be desire, it can be anxiety, it can be remorse. I've heard them all. 
They're called five obscurations, by the way. The things that obscure the kingdom that get, well, when we're just doing the practice correctly, whether any of these three methods, of course other methods, then we find, and most explicitly, your eyes are right there, wide open, mentally attending to what's taking place, watching these knots untie themselves, loosen up, as you simply attend to them without distraction, without grasping. And there's a gravitational pull to release you from the confines of your psyche so that it melts, goes in the substrate consciousness. And now we find a more subtle network of grasping, of clinging, Grasping onto luminosity, into bliss, into non-conceptuality, a subtler level. The reification hasn't yet been challenged. It's been softened up a bit, but hasn't really been challenged. But if we can break through that subtler network of grasping, that which is holding us, locking us in, freezing us, freezing us now in the substrate, which is just relative melting, if we can break through that with vipassana and then the breakthrough, Lo and behold, another gravitational. That is, now we're, now we're going right into the, the source of that gravitational pull. It draws you, it just draws you right through the substrate. You don't have to battle your way through with an axe. All you have to do is release the grasping, re- realize the empty nature of your own mind, the object, subject of your own self. Realize that, so the grasping all softens up and then release grasping entirely. And now the gravitational pull occurs even more deeply. And it's drawing you through the substrate, through the substrate consciousness, right down to Ritpa. And then the practice, when you really are a Dzogchenpa, a lot of people like to think they're Dzogchenpas. They're probably closer to marmots than Dzogchenpas, but who knows? I mean, if all they've learned is just to sit there and be present non-judgmentally, they and the marmots are on a pretty even level. But I have nobody in mind, and I'm not judging anybody, but I, I do say that just sitting there being non-judgmental and being aware is not Dzogchen practice. It's marmot practice. So, but if the practice is authentic, one really is a Dzogchenpa. For example, you've achieved shamatha, you realize vipassana, and you've really immersed yourself in the view, the meditation, the way of life of Dzogchen. Then what do you do? Chadel. There's actually a Rinpoche called Jadel Rinpoche. Jadel Rinpoche. Heard of him? Jadel. Jadel means free of activity. Free of activity. Jame. Devoid of activity. No activity. Jame. That's what you do. Once you've broken through and your substrate is melted into, the, into Rikpa, in pristine awareness, it's radical not doing. And you do it as continuously as possible. You not do 24-7, as much as you possibly can. A gravitational pull then just pulls you right to enlightenment. If you try to do anything, you're just blocking it. You're just throwing boulders in the path. Now that's straight. That's just straight meditation talk. That's classic. Classic Dzogchen. But if we then use a zoom lens and zoom backwards to the wide angle, the panoramic vision, to consider that maybe this is not just the nature of our own individual microcosm here, of my rikpa, my substrate, my psyche, and if I really release, maybe my mind will dissolve in the substrate, the substrate consciousness will dissolve into rikpa. But consider that 
this is actually the way things are generally. That the universe is such that when we stop resisting the gravitational pull of genuine happiness through our craving, our attachment, our delusion, our envy, our pride, all the junk and all the negative unwholesome actions that come out of it, when we stop resisting it and turn our attention to it, it pulls us. When the disciple is ready, the guru appears. How many cliches are there from the world's traditions? They're cliches because they're so true and they've been true for so long and said so many times. And so he said, oh yeah, I heard that one before. When the, when the disciple is ready, the guru is very good. But what if it's really true? That that's just, you know, when I was up there in Norway, maybe, what if that wasn't just a really cool coincidence? That just when I needed a wise old man, it wasn't a wise old woman at the, at the wheel of the VW bug, and I would have said, hi, and we would have talked about cupcakes. I don't know what I would have talked about if it was a wise old woman. You know, I was gender biased at that time. I think less so now. But, you know, just what I needed in, in the... F- Uh-oh. Some people are maybe <laughs> don't agree with me. Well, that's an open question. But um, when I but I can say this, you know, jesting aside, Sakyadamala? Oh. So, but that is a tangent. But what if it's just? But what if it wasn't just a really cool coincidence? That it was the wise old man. That's just a shell. It's the husk. It was right then that I really wanted guidance, something real, something that would really launch me in the direction I needed to go. And I even not only got the juice, but I got the husk. I wanted a wise old man, lo and behold, a wise old man. You know. It's just one case, but there have been so many. But it goes really deep. It, it just, it's asking, in our practice, the question is really a path of self-discovery, who am I? But when we go through the macro level, what kind of place is this anyway? Not just Phuket, not Thailand, not planet Earth, not Milky Way. The whole place. What kind of a place is this? And the Buddhist answer is, the Dzogchen answer, certainly, but it's not just Dzogchen. This is a place where if we Focus our heart, our motivation, our aspirations, our effort on enlightenment. Reality rises up to meet us. That's true. That's, that's pan-Buddhist. It's not an accident. It's not just because we sowed a lot of good seeds and you know, we, we were good farmers in the past and now we get to... It's not just that. There's something deeper than that. So I'm, all of this is kind of a spin-off on some of the import, the inner meaning of this breathing in, this breathing in. Breathing in the kindness of sentient beings, breathing in the kindness, the blessings of the enlightened ones. That in arousing this yearning of loving kindness and compassion, we can ask the question, well, by the way, what is it that the the bodhisattvas and the Buddhas, what do they yearn for? What do they want? And we don't have to guess. I mean, it's pretty clear that all sentient beings may be liberated from suffering and find genuine happiness, find enlightenment. I mean, that's what being a Buddhist is all about. That's what being a Buddha is all about. And so here we are sitting in Phuket, 
wherever we are on the path, maybe at the very bottom of the path looking up, there's the beginning of the path way up there, wherever we are, if that's our motivation, if we're sitting here practicing for 24 minutes, sending out the light of loving kindness to all sentient beings, may each one find happiness in the causes of happiness. Breathing in, may each one be free of suffering in the causes of suffering. Then we've aligned ourselves with the wishes of all the Bodhisattvas and all the Buddhas, and, and all the Buddhas. All the Bodhisattvas, all the Buddhas. Right? And so why shouldn't they help us out since we're simply seeking to emulate and get in the same flow of their aspirations, which may really lie at the very core of nature itself, not just a bunch of wonderful people populating the universe, but right in the very nature of the universe. This is where the force is, the force of enlightenment. So that's blessing. That's where blessing comes from. So it's a grand experiment, grand experiment, to really seek to understand who are we, and in the process, perhaps radically revamp, radically revolutionize our very sense of, our view of what kind of reality we're living in. Because if we're living in, in, a, in a reality, the natural world, and there's nothing supernatural about this, it's the world, it's the world that is there, that's the natural one. If the world, what it, by what, however we call it, natural, supernatural, mystical, or mundane, whatever, if the world is such that it rises up to meet us when we turn to the pursuit of genuine happiness and awakening, that's a very different world than the one most of us were brought up with. It's friendly to Dharma. It may not be friendly to all our hedonic desires. That's hit or miss. It's karma but it's friendly to dharma. And to live in a world like that could be quite bearable if it really rises up to meet us when we rise, when we rise up to meet it. So let's find out. It's too easy to be agnostic. I get impatient with the word agnostic. Of course we're agnostic. Until you're a Buddha, you're, until you're, a Buddha, you're agnostic. But let's be agnostic for as short a time as possible. <laughs> and get to the point that we move from avidya, agnostic, to vidya, gnostic. Okay? Let's practice. Settle the body, speech, and mind in the natural state.
and let the sonic boom of this Donglen practice begin in your own being as with each out-breath you arouse the yearning. May I find genuine happiness in its causes, breathing out the light from your heart, and with each in-breath arousing the yearning, may I be free of suffering and the causes of suffering. Dissolving in all that obscures, all that obstructs your well-being in the form of a dark cloud dissolving into your heart. Begin with yourself. And then like light shining out from the sun in all directions, evenly. Let this field of your awareness expand in all directions. And practice as before.
And if you will shift the practice, with each in-breath imagine all the kindness of sentient beings who have assisted you not only in this but in all previous lifetimes, aiding along the way for your hedonic well-being, for genuine happiness, and all the blessings, the compassion of the enlightened ones. Imagine all of this converging from all sides, above and below and from all the sides around, with each in-breath, in the spirit of mudita, of joy and gratitude, accepting that which is freely given, the inflow of all this light, with every inhalation and with every exhalation, breathing out this same light, drawn into your heart, flowing out from the heart, flowing out as loving-kindness. Be a siphon for the kindness of sentient beings and the compassion of the enlightened ones. If you wish to embed this practice in the stage of generation of your choice, of course, that is your freedom. Completely authentic. It's your choice.
This morning we expanded the space of awareness above, to the right and left, below. Once again we expand the space of awareness, this time filling it with light. Release all appearances and all aspirations and all concepts. And let your awareness rest in the evenness, the equilibrium of its own nature.
I have the impression <coughs> that within the context of Buddha Dharma today, Theravada, Zen, Chan, Tibetan Buddhism, that there are many extraordinarily deep practices in all these traditions. About that I really don't have any doubt. And I have the impression, maybe false, that a lot of us engaging in these practices in the Tibetan tradition, state regeneration, completion, Dzogchen, Bodhicitta, Vipassana, and so forth, that we're engaging in these practices with our minds. Which is, as they are, psyche, the coarse mind. Not only the mind, but the mind that is cluttered with excitation and laxity. So we're bringing that mind to Vipassana, that mind to Bodhicitta, that mind to Avalokiteshvara. I'm sorry, but I think if I were, <laughs> if I were Avalokiteshvara, I'd think, get that dirty thing out of here. <laughs> what are you bringing that to me for? Can't you do anything better than that, you know? I love music. And one of the one of the pieces of music I love, together with many other people, is Handel's Messiah. It's one of the most majestic pieces of music, Handel's Messiah, that that anyone has ever composed, I think. And there's many extraordinary pieces of music from the West. But you can imagine the whole choir and the orchestra coming together. It's quite quite a lot of people, I think, for Handel's Messiah. Imagine them, hundred, how many people? I don't know, lots. The whole whole chorus, the whole orchestra coming there. It's Christmas time, they're about to, and they've been practicing all year. And they get on the stage, and there's 5,000 people in the audience. And the conductor starts. To, and he notices the audience won't be quiet. They just keep on talking and talking and talking, and he's waiting for them to stop. Don't you want to hear the music? And we all showed up here to play some music. Did you just come here to talk? Imagine he waits there for two hours and they don't stop talking. Or he says, well, okay, that's what you want. Okay, choir, orchestra, here we go. They want to talk. Okay, here we go. Imagine Handel's Messiah being played in a concert hall where 5,000 people are chatting and eating popcorn and crumpling their paper. And that would be kind of, I think, disrespectful to Handel and to the choir, and to the orchestra, and to the conductor. I've said that kind of thing before. These two practices of shamatha, and then the array, that is these two blocks of practices, shamatha and the four measurables, they're really designed to launch us beyond mind, beyond the psyche, beyond personal history, and beyond culture. To get to the point that you've actually achieved shamatha, you've now transcended your mind, and when you're dwelling in that substrate, you're no longer a man or woman, you're not Mexican, American, you're not old or young, you're not a Spanish speaker or a French speaker, and likewise, by the time you are dwelling in, you really have found your home in the four immeasurables. That's where your mind is. It's immeasurably loving, compassionate, and so forth. You've transcended these specificities, the specifics of your own personal history, the century, the century you were born in, the society you were born in, the personal history, the kind of mom and dad you have, the kind of genes you have. You've transcended that. 
So to get to that point, to get to that point, then we have many different types of dharma, and there's being a lot of very innovative things happening. Even I am being cautiously, a little bit fearfully, a little bit innovative, suggesting that when you practice awareness of awareness, in the early phases you might conjoin that with the breathing in and out. Padmasambhava never said that. But I've been teaching this in the modern world, and I find, okay, it, it helps some people for a little while. So I was a bit of an innovative. Why? Because we're so ADHD, we're so OCDD, that something like that might help. Right? And then Tony Karam teaching in Latin America for so long. I know that, I mean, I, I don't understand him teaching in Spanish, but I have a strong confidence that he's fain, found, what, 20 years or so, skillful means that I'm sure he would be an excellent Dharma teacher in Germany and New York and in Canada and so forth. There's no question. He's a really good Dharma teacher. But I'll bet you that he's an especially good Dharma teacher for people from Latin America. Isn't it true? He just, he knows the vernacular, he knows the language, he knows what's funny. He knows there's just all the insider stuff that no outsider will ever get, you know. And so that's Mexican Dharma, as it should be, as it should be, right? And I can't help it. I teach American Dharma. I teach American Dharma. You know, my, my analogies are about football, you know, or, or baseball, or this or that. Where did that come from? You know, not Iceland, you know. And so, can't help it, that personal history. So, within that context, when we're still within the atmosphere, within the atmosphere of our own psyche, of our own acculturation, then to bring in where, how could psychotherapy help out? What schools of psych, should it be ACT, should it be MBSR, should it be cognitive behavioral therapy? What types of modern therapy might help people through settling the mind, help them in cultivating the four measurables, help them in cultivating greater stability, dealing with emotional problems, so forth. And that's a, that's a real question. That's not rhetorical, and there's absolutely no sarcasm in that. How can we help? We need anything that can help. Can yoga be a little bit helpful? How about maybe a lot helpful? What, what can, should we swim? You know, blah, 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 blah. So to get from where we started and to be able to get through the atmospheric distortions of you're a Latina, you're an American, you're Scandinavian, you're Russian, you're Indian, you're Thai. To get through that, as we find the Thais emphasize certain practices that Tibetans didn't emphasize. They emphasize things the Chinese didn't emphasize. There's a lot of variety there just that are, are really specific, adapted to culture. Frankly, I mean, it's a historical truth, Lam Rim was not Indian. There was no Lam Rim in India. That particular format was devised by Atisha for Tibetans in the 11th century. And it was the shoe fit, and it's fit for a good millennium afterwards. Not bad. A shoe that, you know, fits for a thousand years, pretty good fit. Doing five preliminary practices, 100,000 each, that was created for Tibetans by Tibetans. And it's good. The shoe fits. Whether it's going to fit equally well for Westerners, well, that's an open question. Individual, individual. Three retreats starting with the preliminary practice, doing the, doing the set of five again, and then doing this, 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 this. From what I've heard, that particular format, 19th century, by Tibetans, for Tibetans. Good. Good. No criticism. Right? And, and we're finding there's an American Dharma coming up, then people are talking about secular Dharma coming up. Sometimes secular Dharma is just, I think, it, in its shallowest version, is just bringing one's own unquestioned assumptions, prejudices against religion, often materialistic assumptions, looking at Buddhism and saying, okay, everything that doesn't correspond to my assumptions, 
that's not essential, or the Buddha never taught it, or I don't like it, throw it out. I just want the things that I feel comfortable with. Okay, Donglen, yeah, you're in. Rebirth, out. Okay, ethics, in. Karma, out. Okay, anything else? A spirit's out. Uh, God's out. Okay, Buddha was a good guy, in. <laughs> you know, just whatever fits your assumptions, just let that in and call that secular dharma. That's not secular dharma, that's just your dharma. That's 21st century American stuff. But it's just all caught in the atmospheric haze of your own psyche, your own acculturation, your, t- your century. You're locked in your space and time. And if you say, and then, I mean, the, the, the worst thing that happens then is everything is not this, the Buddha never taught. Ay, ay, ay. That's like saying all there is is atmospheric distortion and there's no such thing as deep space. Those are just twinkly little things up there in the sky. They're little ap- apparition artifacts of our atmosphere. So as long as we're still working within psyche, within this context, coarse mind, then there needs to be, and there should be, a lot of variation, innovation, adaptation, and so forth. Are you a Latina? Are you a Scandinavian? Are you Indian? And so forth and so on. Just anything that works to help us work through all the knottedness, all the bindings, and all the contraptions, and so that we can get into the clear blue sky, And when I think of these two, the shamatha and actually going all the way to shamatha, the four immeasurables, and actually realizing the four immeasurables, it's like establishing, I often use the word Hubble telescope, it's also like launching a space station, which is not just some machine up there, it's a place where people can live. But their view of the universe from that perspective, beyond the atmospheric distortions of our planet, must be quite extraordinary. Right? It's a different platform. And when you're up there, you're not in America anymore. You're not, you're not on planet Earth anymore. You're not Latina, you're not Russian, you're not American. You're a space station person. And that's your platform. And so until that point, until the achievement of shamat, until the, uh, the realization of the four immeasurables, our practice is just bound to be tied up into our culture. It'll be Tibetan, it'll be Chinese, American, Latino, whatever it may be. It's bound to be, because that's where we're living. How can it not be? Because that's where we're living. The mind that we're practicing with is saturated by my personal history, my language, my, 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 my. And then you get that atmospheric distortion of you, of your psyche, out of the way. And suddenly you're just in clear blue substrate consciousness. That has no acculturation to it at all. It's not ancient, modern, east, west. None, it's not Buddhist, not Buddhist. Not, not Buddhist. It's not. And likewise, the four immeasurables. There's nothing Buddhist about those, right? It's not religious, it's not theistic, it's not atheistic, it's not religious, anti-religious. It's just the four immeasurables, clear blue sky. Wide open, unimpeded, authentic, tapping into the wellsprings of caring of a sentient being in the universe. From that platform, from that space station of shamatha, realizing shamatha, not just practicing it, realizing the four immeasurables. Now, every, now everything's possible. Everything you've heard about in Dharma that is from an authentic source, not chit-chat. Now everything is possible. My earliest teacher who taught me a lot, Geshe-Gaon said, well, once you've achieved shamatha, then vipassana is easy. And 
it doesn't take a whole lot of imagination to see that probably is true. If you've been working, for example, in awareness of awareness and probing in upon the observer, in upon the agent, and getting crystal clear, then just turn the page in natural liberation and you, and you step right into Vipassana land, and it's just a smooth trajectory right along that current. But now you're doing it with a mind that is luminous, clear, stable. The whole audience in Carnegie Hall has gone quiet. And the Handel's Messiah of Vipassana is playing without any noise at all, outside noise. It's just the straight music. Well, then, of course, why wouldn't that go really smoothly? And again, how much imagination do we need to think that if you've really realized the four immeasurables right on through to equanimity, how difficult would bodhicitta be from that platform, from that space station? can't imagine it would be very difficult. Where, where are the big obstacles? The big obstacles are behind you. I don't like him. I don't I like her. I don't like them. I don't like... Yeah, 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 all that crap of the mind. You've transcended. You've got a space station above all that stuff. It's all sentient beings. And it's clear blue sky. So I said a couple of days ago I would fill you in a little bit on the four greats. We have the four measurables, and then, oddly enough, the terminology is a little bit misleading, but beyond the immeasurable are the greats. And the sequence, so this is classic, what I'm about to share with you, it's classic, but I, I can't find the source. I thought it was maybe in Longchamba, and it may be, but I couldn't identify it. But it, I looked at the notes, and I, I just looked at it and said, that's not the kind of thing I'd make up. Um, and so I'm just assuming the source is sound, but I can't find it right now for what I'm about to tell you. Okay? The sequence of the four greats, it's the four immeasurables, but now instead of immeasurable, great. Mahakaruna, great compassion. Now this is classic, and I said I'd share it with you. I think it may be good for background material, may be helpful. Mahakaruna, the order is slightly altered here. Because the order for the four measurables is classic, and you know what it is. It starts with love and kindness, ends with equanimity. The order for the four greats is slightly altered with the first two reversing roles. The first one is great compassion. The second is great loving kindness, Mahamaitri. The third is great empathetic joy, Mahamudita. And the fourth, great equanimity, Mahaupeksha. So it starts with great compassion and with absolutely awesomely magnificent good reason. And that it is, it is the cultivation and the arousal of maha karuna, great compassion, that stirs and wakes up your Buddha nature. Right? Because it's, it's either crazy, that is this aspiration, this resolve, it's more than an aspiration, it is moving beyond, like it's in the Tibetan liturgy, why couldn't all sentient beings be free of suffering? That's a really juicy question. And the causes of suffering. That's just a, but that's just a good question. It's not even an answer. It's why couldn't they? And then the second one is immeasurable. May all sentient beings be free of suffering and the causes of suffering. That's immeasurable. Been there, done that. Right? And then, I shall, here's a resolve. Dakijao means I shall do. I shall free all sentient beings from suffering and the causes of suffering. Well, that's no longer immeasurable. 
you've just stepped into Mahakaruna land with that one. Because this is a resolve. This is just my, like, my, my telling you, I'll pick up all of your flyers at the end. Or in fact, I would ask Chris if you would. All the fly, uh, flyers? You, you, know, you, you know my motto, work! <laughs> I can turn it over to somebody else. Thank you. <laughs> so I resolved to turn that work over to Carissa. And I've done so, you know. But it's a resolve is, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. This, this I'm going to do. Well, this resolve, and pardon me, this is a bit redundant. I know that I'll try to be concise. This resolve, I shall liberate all sentient beings from suffering, the causes of suffering, from the perspective of either the psyche or the substrate consciousness. That's just crazy talk. That's just so silly. You know, take a pill. You know, you're suffering from some severe form of me megalomania. It's a type of psychosis, and I think there is medication for that. So from either of those perspectives, it's, it's, it really is crazy. Because you're making a promise, there's no way you ever keep. Right? But to make that from your heart, from your heart of the hearts, that it's, when you're saying it, it's coming out of your core. As you well know, I think, by now, there is, from the Buddhist perspective, I'll just toss that in, there is only one perspective from which this makes any sense, in which it's reasonable. And that is if you're speaking from the dimension of your own Buddha nature, Rikpa. And, and arousing that resolve sincerely, as if you really mean it, and you're not naive, thinking, you know, you've never traveled more than 10 kilometers from your home, and so all sentient beings is a few hundred people. Not naive. The Buddhist worldview, absolutely vast. Modern cosmology, absolutely vast. That kind of vastness. Well, there is this perspective. And arousing that resolve of Maha Karuna, great compassion, stirs, awakens, activates your own Buddha nature. So that's a good place to start. You're really now venturing, venturing on to the on-ramp. You, you found the on-ramp onto the Mahayana highway. You're not quite there yet. You're not a Bodhisattva. But boy, if you found the on-ramp, and there may be a little bit of a waiting line there and the red light and green light and so forth, but you're definitely on the on-ramp. You cultivate great compassion. You've just stepped out of pursuit of liberation just for yourself. And so you cultivate that. Now, classic teachings, this is the first in the sequence. I think now it's pretty kind of clear why. Because what is manifest, what is obvious, is the massive suffering of sentient beings and the needless perpetuation of the causes of suffering one is attending to that reality and arousing from one's very core the aspiration and the resolve, I shall, free, I shall free us all, I shall free us all without exception, however long it may take for as long as space remains. And for as long as sentient beings remain, so long shall I remain to alleviate the suffering of the world. I think of all the prayers, that's the Dalai Lama's favorite one, I think. I think it's on his website. Well, that's Mahakaruna as long as space remains. And that's way beyond the, the mere duration of a universe. It's as long as space remains. So that first, arousing that first, and now in these classic teachings, I said I would allude to, in mapping this onto a 24-hour period. This is the first, and it's practice in the morning. In the morning. It's a morning practice. Mahakaruna, morning practice and is associated among the four types of enlightened activity. You might recall what they are. 
pacification? Well, I'll just give them one, just give them one at a time. The first of the four types of enlightened activity is called in Tibetan shiwele, the activity of pacification. Pacification of calming, soothing, healing. Pretty self-explanatory. And it's color-coded white. So it's the color of doctors and nurses, healers. And it's in the morning. And then out of that, there needs to be not only that I, will leave, I, that I shall take on the, the responsibility, I shall resolve to free all sentient beings from something, but also to bring them to something. You can't just be going away from, you have to be going to. So the, but the first thing is out of here. This is unbearable. It's called unbearable compassion. Can't, I can't bear the suffering of sentient beings. So this is clear. We need out of suffering. But then away from suffering and its causes and to where. And that's where Maha Maitri comes in. Great loving kindness. I shall bring all sentient beings to genuine happiness and its causes. A second resolve. A second resolve. The time is the afternoon. And the type of enlightened activity is that of enrichment. Gepele. Gepa means to expand, to enrich, to increase. So it's increasing others whatever they need for their happiness. That is material wealth, food, clothing, shelter, education, companionship, friendship, teachings, knowledge, whatever they need to enrich, to enrich sentient beings so that they, we do everything we can to enable them, to facilitate them, to finding genuine happiness and its causes. So it's afternoon, the color of the midday sun, gold. And then as one is not just sitting there wishing that, but of course one is integrating this into a lifestyle, beginning each morning with great compassion, venturing into the day with great loving kindness, enacting, manifesting in the world, then one sees there is effect, and then great empathetic joy. As one sees that, in fact, sentient beings are not immutably locked into their mental afflictions, into our mental afflictions, who am I talking about? Into our mental afflictions and our unwholesome behavior, but in fact, there's plasticity here, there's a possibility of freedom, seeing that people can really benefit from dharma, seeing that they can really emerge towards genuine happiness, then I take upon myself the responsibility of enabling all sentient beings never to be parted from. In other words, the momentum is up. Hey, this is working. Dharma works. Right? So may, as you see, sentient beings starting to flower, to awaken, to set out on the path, may each one never be parted from genuine happiness and the causes of genuine happiness. May they never be parted. Empathetic joy. In the form of not only an aspiration, but a resolve. Evening. And the, and the type of enlightened activity, wangile, the activity of empowerment, of power, of strength, totally motivated by compassion and loving kindness. 
not just power, power. But it's the power to not fall off the path, the power not to be disengaged, the strength, the fortitude, the sisu, not to be falling away, to become faint of heart, to become flaky, but the strength to really coalesce that one is firmly on the path with might, with strength. Evening time, red, the third of the greats. And then finally, great upeksha, great equanimity. I shall enable, I shall enable all sentient beings to abide in upeksha, equanimity, equilibrium, evenness. One could then spring off to Dzogchen and say, into the one taste, the non-duality of samsara and nirvana, that non-abiding enlightenment that is neither immersed in samsara nor in nirvana, the great evenness, I shall enable all sentient beings to abide in the great equanimity, free of attachment to those who are near, aversion to those who are far, free from all this and that, affirmation and negation, acceptance and, reg- and, and rejection, great upeksha. And the time for that is the night, and the color and the activity is ferocity. And the color is indigo, indigo, dark blue, dark blue. So those are classic teachings. As long as we're back here, still being Mexican and Finn and American and Belgian and so forth and so on, back Im- embedded in our lives and our personal histories, our psyches, our own particular network of neuroses and so forth and so on, then each person is finding his own way. You find this teacher, that teacher, you're following Galupa tradition, Yingma tradition, this, that, or the other thing. Zen, what can be Rinzai, it's going to be Soto. You know, so we find our own way, as we should. That's exactly right. This is why there's such a tremendous variety of Dharma, because there's such a tremendous variety of sentient beings. But once one finally disentangles oneself from oneself, disentangles oneself, frees oneself from one's own personal history, acculturation, psyche, gets to the space station, where it's just clear, open, spacious. Then you just slip into more, and I'm speaking now straight, Mayana Buddhism. So if you don't like it, they don't have to accept anything I'm saying. Who cares? But straight Mayana Buddhism. There are many, many avenues, many, many paths, 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 paths. But finally, when you're really fully capable of practicing Vipassana, there's no American emptiness or Hispanic emptiness, old emptiness, newer emptiness, woman's emptiness, man's emptiness. There is no way to enlightenment without realizing the perfection of wisdom. And it's not, it's not, planeta- it's not belonging to our earth or to our species, let alone to our culture. There is just no way to Buddhahood without realizing the perfection of wisdom. 
it doesn't matter who you are, what kind of sentient being you are, human, non-human, or anything else, you've gone into universal Dharma land that is just not specific to this particular universe or the last one or the next one. They've just found a galaxy that is 13.1 billion light years away. Well, if there's anybody still living there and they're achieving enlightenment, they're, they're achieving it by way of perfection of wisdom. Because it's just knowing reality as it is. And I said, I'm, this is not evangelism. I'm simply speaking from the perspective of Mahayana Buddhism. And I do believe what I'm saying otherwise. Of course, I wouldn't say it. But there it is. You've gone universal. You've transcended now your being on this planet, in this place, this century, this culture, this person, this parent. And so, never mind all of that. You've gone beyond that. Now just practice universal dharma. Perennial Dharma, timeless Dharma, the perfection of wisdom. You're ready to go. You're ready to go. If you've achieved shamatha, you're ready to go. That's exactly what Atisha says. He says, in order to truly sen- to serve sentient beings, you have to develop extrasensory perception. Therefore, develop shamatha. Make sure all the requisites are there. Achieve shamatha. But now, if all you've achieved is shamatha, then you haven't done what really needs to be done to eradicate mental addictions from their source, and for that you need the perfection of wisdom. Boom. But you're no longer dealing with Tibetan Buddhism. You're no longer dealing 11th century. You've gone to universal Dharma. There you are. On the one hand, it's ultimate bodhicitta, the perfection of wisdom, realization of emptiness. On the other hand, there's nothing American or earth-like or Milky Way-ish about bodhicitta. And the Mayana teachings are perfectly clear. No one ever achieves enlightenment without bodhicitta. So in terms of classic Mahayana, once you've achieved shamatha, the four immeasurables, you are ready fully to go right into the perfection of wisdom and you are fully primed to go into the four greats and on to bodhicitta. And to realize emptiness and to realize bodhicitta. And now you have the two wings to enlightenment and everything you need, basically, you now have. But this is now universal. And there's just no need to adapt it for anybody. There's not American perfection of wisdom. There's not American or Latino bodhicitta. It's, you've gone beyond that. You've gone beyond that. And from that platform, bodhicitta and vipassana, now speaking from Vajrayana perspective, imagine an authentic, and some of us like Glenn and Balsang, and I'm sure others, maybe Jacob, you've seen some of what are the qualities of a fully qualified Vajrayana master. Pretty awesome, remember? Like 20 of them, isn't it? You say, wow, wow, unbelievable. Imagine, imagine though, just to let your imagination play, imagine you're a fully qualified Vajrayana Acharya. I mean, you've got, you are absolutely qualified. Everything. You've got all those qualities. And somebody comes to you who's achieved shamatha, the four immeasurables, gain realization of emptiness, and achieve bodhicitta. What do you think you'd say to that person? I think maybe, come over. You are ready. You're ready. You can go the long route if you like. There's the long route. Simply continue on. Ultimate relative, ultimate relative. Carry on. Or... You can practice stage of generation, stage of completion, and you can finish this in this lifetime. If you're a Buddha. 
if, you're, if you have those, to be, you may become a Buddha. You have everything needed. Now what you need is Vajrayana empowerment, the oral transmission, the explanation, you need guidance, you need to follow the Samayas, but you are now totally ready. And if you would now like to achieve perfect enlightenment in this lifetime, well, you're the kind of disciple I've been waiting for. Because you have everything needed. Now you need to do a step into the carriage, the Vajrayana. Or if you're a thoroughly qualified Dzogchen master, and that same person comes, say, oh, you've already achieved shamatha? Out of four, I, I, I had four things for you to do. You've already achieved shamatha? Oh, cool. You've already achieved Vipassana too? Oh, that's very cool. Then there's only two more things to do. Tekchut and Tutkyal. Break through to your Buddha nature. Tutkyal. Direct crossing over, fully manifest all the qualities of your Buddha nature. It's a two-step. It's a two-step. So come hither. Practice Dzogchen. Let's get this, fin- let's get this done. There's no reason to wait for some other lifetime. It's never going to get any better than this. This is it. This is your lifetime. This is the one you've been waiting for since samsara began, whenever that was. This is it. And those practices, texture, turtgel, again, I would say, my faith is very strong here. It doesn't matter what galaxy you're living in. And we're talking about Buddha nature here. And we're talking about fully manifesting the qualities of Buddha nature. So whether you're in the Milky Way or some other Andromeda galaxy or some other galaxy, it doesn't matter. Buddha nature is Buddha nature. The direct crossing over is the direct crossing over. Stage of generation, stage of completion. There they are. So that kind of rounds off our cycle of 20. So I'm, I'm, I'm known by some of my friends as I'm a Shamatawala. Oh, Alan, that's Shamata, Shamata, Shamata. Shamata is just trying to build a space station so we can get out of being American and being a Mexican. Oh, isn't it tiresome being stuck in personal history and all the garbage you get to look at when you settle the mind in its natural state? Wouldn't you just like to see all that atmospheric distortion, all the blood just... Oh, that's what deep space looks like. So that's what this practice is for. And whether we'll have in the foreseeable future and future lifetimes a better opportunity than this one is very dubious. So this is something for my enjoyment, which I will enjoy. Just some printed material, printed material for me to read. I'll look forward to it. And what is the root of jealousy, envy, attachment, or aversion. What is the root? What is the root? I think we call it delusion. Delusion lies at the root of attachment and aversion. Envy, or jealousy, is just a weird, psychotic little hybrid (laughs) of attachment and aversion. Because if I'm jealous of how handsome Carlos is, you know, I'm really attached to being that handsome, but the chances of that are zero. More likely that I'm going to achieve rainbow body in this lifetime than I'm going to become a handsome in this lifetime. And so I want something he has that I can't have. I want to be young and handsome. But you don't deserve to be so handsome. You don't. He should be a little bit uglier. You know? So I don't like that he's handsome, but I want to be handsome. Well, that's just nuts. 
Because the strange thing about jealousy is it doesn't succeed. I don't become more handsome by being jealous of his handsome. He doesn't become less handsome by my being jealous of his being handsome. It's just stupid. Being envious of somebody else is just stupid. Anger isn't stupid. You actually can get something done. You can, you know, slap people. You can do something. I mean, and craving an attachment, you can get something, you know, get some sex, get some food, money, whatever. They're not crazy, they're just delusional. But envy is just crazy because it doesn't work, you know? So that's why it's rooted in delusion. That was easy. So do, do away with that one. But again, even better than doing away with it is to transmute it. So why don't we just touch there? Uh-huh. Um, because when we think of the five, po the five, no, not the five obscurations, but the five poisons, five poisons from the Vajrayana perspective, very unlike the Theravada perspective. From the Vajrayana perspective, these five don't just get terminated. They don't turn into nothing. So the first one's delusion. If we go top, top to bottom, up there where Vairochana is, and it's delusion. But remove all the grasping and all the ordinary, all the ordinary grasping, the reification of it. Remove all the gunk, clean it off like a golden statue in, encased in cow dung, and just clean off all the cow dung. And what is it without all the mesh of grasping? Chuying ishe. The primordial consciousness of Dhammadhatu, primordial wisdom, primordial consciousness, both are valid translations. It's, it's direct realization of ultimate reality. Delusion. Delusion gets transmuted into deepest, deepest form of realization, of wisdom. And then we have the, the toxin, the poison of attachment, craving, greed, afflictive desire. but remove the layers, see its essential nature without the grasping, the overlays, the distortion. And we have Amitabha. As this is Varochana, we have Amitabha. Primordial consciousness of discernment. Of discernment. Clarity. Discernment. And then we have anger, resentment, hatred, aggression, hostility. Remove all the layers of that. See it in its essential nature. It's mirror-like primordial consciousness. Akshobhya, the heart. And then we have this ridiculous fusion of delusion and attachment directed to the self. So first of all, the reification of self. And then with attachment, the aggrandizement of self. I'm something very special. I'm superior. And so we have arrogance or pride peel away the layers of that. And it's the primordial consciousness of equality. Ratnasambhava. The navel. And all of this was a build-up to envy. It's envy. And I do think it's, I think it's, the better translation is envy than jealousy. Uh, someone just mentioned that this person was suffering from jealousy. And it was reference to another person. Like, for example, I, I, I'll just shift it because I don't want to even remotely invade somebody's privacy. But for example, if I were a jealous husband, jealous of my wife who's off coming, I think, flying back from memory, 
And I might, oh, she's quite, she's quite, quite attractive. So I think, oh, she shouldn't, I hope, I hope nobody's looking, you know, blah, 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 the jealous husband. That's not what, that's not what this is. It's not the jealous husband. That's just attachment. That's just attachment. No, the, the envy is, again, being envy of somebody else's good looks, or their money, their fame, whatever, whatever. And so it's envy. So envy, peel off the layers of that one. Envy wants something out there. Wants something they can't have. It's kind of frustrated. But peel away the layers of frustration, all the layers of grasping and so forth, and it's jadupyeshe, primordial consciousness of accomplishment. Getting things done. Amoga city. So white, red, deep blue, gold, green. But they're all deluded. That is, all of the five, five all stem from delusion. So they all have that common parent. So I spoke a lot. There was no time for discussion at all. Uh, but I'm going to make up for it. And that is for the next two days, uh, the meditations will be silent. We finished a whole cycle. We haven't finished the week. So tomorrow morning and afternoon, Saturday morning and afternoon, I will just, I will be here, of course, I'm with you, but I will just be, for the meditations themselves, I'll just chime. And what I'd like, to, I'd like you to do is draw from the last three cycles that we've done, and in the morning do shamatha, but of your choice. In the afternoons, your choice among the four measurables. You don't have to go back to the beginning, you do whatever one you like, right? But your choice, as Lerap Lingba says at the end of his teachings on settling the mind is natural state, be your own mentor. Be your own mentor. Give yourself your own guided meditation for Friday and for Saturday. So I'll be completely silent. Can't imagine how much I'm looking forward to this. <laughs> During the meditations themselves. In the morning after that, we might have five minutes or so for just a bit of question and answer. If anything comes up, if it doesn't, we can just head out. And then in the afternoons, after the 24-minute session, then we'll have time for discussion, whatever comes up. Okay? And then Monday... Then I'll ask for a vote. I'll ask for a vote. And that is whether you'd like to do another cycle of the, of the, of the 20, a vote, like, like, uh, of the, uh, have another cycle with fewer words because you are getting more and more familiar. So no matter what, clearly, if I, if I need to give you through the cycle again, I don't need to use as many words while in the meditation itself. Um, but may, you might like to take off. I think what I'll ask you is on next week, for that week, would you like to have guided meditations? Would you like to have it silent? And simply continue on. We'll still have our discussions. It'll be a straight raise of hands. And although you can tell that I would mildly prefer to have it just quiet myself, I didn't travel across the Pacific Ocean to do as little service as possible, but to try to do as much benefit. So if you'd like for the guided meditations on Monday, of course, that's what I'm here for. But if a majority, it'll be a flat-out majority, majority feels, well, for one week, why don't we just have it quiet meditations? No one, this is a command, no one should think, oh, Alan will be disappointed. He will, he will be so wanting to teach us meditation and we will have disappointed him. Please don't think that, because <laughs> you'll be false. <laughs> you'll be wrong. All right, so we'll have a vote on Monday, whether for that week you'd like to have guided meditations or just silence for the meditation time. And I'm pretty close to equilibrium. But insofar as wishing anything, I kind of like silence myself. But if, if it's beneficial for me to talk, of course, 
I talk. And I talk. And I talk. Hola, so. <laughs>